Let us pray. Gracious God, be with us today as we study your holy word. We pray that we would be convicted by your spirit, not only of your goodness and faithfulness to the covenant, but also speak a word to us about how we might join you as your covenant partners brought in through grace. Bless our study today. Bless our conversation. Bless our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, so here we are in chapter 5. Paul begins with the word, therefore, which signals a transition. You might remember from the very beginning of this study that Romans neatly breaks up, in a sense, thematically, where chapters 1 through 4 kind of form a section, 5 through 8 form a section, 9 through 12 form a section, and 13 through 16 form a section. And so Paul is transitioning. He has spent the last four chapters really leveling the playing field, introducing his thesis about the gospel being the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also equally to the Greek. And in the backdrop here are Jews and Gentiles living together in a Christian community trying to make sense of what this means and how on earth God could be faithful to God's covenant to Abraham with Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. We've talked about how God's righteousness also means God's covenant justice, and one of the questions at stake is, has God been faithful to the covenant And of course, Paul's answer is a resounding yes, that this community is a manifestation of God's faithfulness, that God always wanted to bring Jew and Gentile together, and that God, in fact, has saved the world through Israel by doing so through the son of David, the faithful Israelite who was faithful in every way where the people of Israel were not faithful. So now, Paul is transitioning, and so he starts with the word, therefore, since we are justified by faith. The implication is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom 
we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Now, this phrase, access to grace in which we stand, is cultic language. It brings to mind the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, where only the high priest had access to the Holy of Holies, and that once a year. But now we are a new royal priesthood. We have access and we all stand in the Holy of Holies together. Um, You might recall from last week or the week before where Christ was a propitiation, but the Greek word was mercy seat, that Christ's death was the mercy seat, meaning we all have access. And so there's a lot of Old Testament imagery brought together, and now we all stand in the presence of God through grace as a royal priesthood. And the question is, what do we boast in? Because remember, Paul has said we do not boast in the law. That is not what we boast in. And so Paul will talk a bit about what we boast in. We'll say we boast in hope, we boast in suffering, we boast in God himself. But in verse 2, he says, we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, this word glory is very central to the meaning of Romans. It has two really key meanings. One is it signifies the royal vocation of human beings before the fall. It recalls Psalm 8, how we were made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory, that there was a glory to our humanity before sin entered in. And in that glory, humanity was given dominion over the creation, not domination, right? Domination is what happens when dominion is tainted with sin, but dominion, um, stewardship. We were to exercise our wise rule over the creation as God's covenant partners. That's what it meant for a human being to have glory. And so Paul is saying we hope to share in that glory once again. And so part of what's being referenced here is a restoration of our humanity before the fall. And of course, the word glory also means the weight and splendor of God's presence. In verse 3, Paul then says we boast in our sufferings. And so Paul introduces the idea that suffering and how we embrace it is part of our vocation. The Greek word here is slipsis, which literally means a pressure that comes from a pressing together. And so the suffering Paul speaks of is a pressure from the pressing together of the new creation overlapping with the old. That pressure presses us and teaches us to endure. There is a tension between the new creation breaking in and the old creation in which we live, move, have our being. And that pressing here, I think, is what Paul is talking about. And he is encouraging us to lean into that pressing saying that it will produce endurance, character, and ultimately hope. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us in verse 5. In verse 6, Paul talks about how at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I love this phrase, at the right time, because there's always the question, why doesn't God act now? 
why doesn't God just come back and solve all the messes of the world now? Um, or if you were a Jew living under Roman rule, why doesn't God come back and kill all the Romans and restore the throne of David now? And so part of what Paul is saying is that this happened at the right time, that God's providence is at play here. And what happened was that Christ died for the ungodly. That's really code for Jew and Gentile alike, um, the sinful. Um, Paul is not talking here about, you know, morally bad people in a world where some people are morally good. But we remember from chapters 1 and 2 that Paul has already leveled the playing field, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And the point here is, verse 8, that God proves his love for us in and through the death of his son, because one of the things at stake is the covenant faithfulness of God. Is God faithful to the covenant? Does God love us? Has God abandoned us? Uh, For those of you who were part of the Daniel study last semester, you recall these were the real questions that Jews living in exile would have asked. And here Paul says, yes, God loves us. No, God has not abandoned us, but God has proven his love for us in the most paradoxical of ways by sending sending his son to die, uh, meaning that we have been justified by his blood. And that word justification, it's a legal metaphor. It has to do with a changing of status, uh, a declaration of innocence and membership in the present as God's vindicated covenant people. And so I'll go ahead and and stop there, and we'll see what questions you have about Romans 5, 1 through 11. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law, yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many." And the free gift is not like the effect of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life to the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. But law came in, with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
so that just as sin exercised dominion and death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, now if you were a little lost there, that's okay, because it's a confusing passage. So uh, let's try and unpack it really quick, and I'm going to paint with pretty broad brushstrokes here, and if we want to get into the weeds in our conversation, we can. So what Paul is going to do here is contrast the sin of Adam with the gift of the Messiah. So he starts with how sin enters the world through one man, and the reason that's important is for Jews in Jesus' day, the understanding was that God called Abram as a solution to the problem of Adam, that with Adam, something entered our world that wasn't good, that needed to be rectified. And if we read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, there are some strange stories and some mythic, you know, genres of literature, but it's very clear that the creation is not in good shape, right? We have the story of the fall, we have Cain killing Abel, we have giants walking the earth, we have the story of Noah and the flood, you know, so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, Abram is called, but as a solution or a response to a problem initiated through Adam. Um, And so that's an important thing to say, but one of the things we realize in reading Paul is that the problem is much bigger than we thought. The problem is much bigger than we thought. The law cannot handle the problem. The descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, cannot handle the problem. The problem is big, right? Because the problem is sin and death with a capital S and capital D. And so that's kind of what Paul's going to be getting into here. But before he does, he has to compare and contrast Adam and Christ, and we're told that Adam is a type of the one to come, referring to the Messiah. That Greek word typos, which is translated type, it means a person or a thing prefiguring a future or a future image. And so Adam is something of a negative prefiguring of Christ. Um, And God's righteousness or God's covenantal faithfulness is displayed in that we are being moved from in Adam to in the Messiah. This is really about a transfer of with whom we have solidarity. Do we have solidarity with Adam and the old creation, or do we have solidarity with the Messiah and the new creation? And so in verse 15 on, Paul essentially contrasts Adam and the Messiah. With Adam, we have the trespass. With the Messiah, we have the free gift. With Adam, death reigns. With the Messiah, grace abounds. With Adam, there is a judgment that leads to condemnation. The people are cast out of the garden But with the Messiah, there is a judgment that leads to justification. That is a declaration of being in the right. And with Adam, we are all slaves to death. But in the Messiah, we are freed from 
slavery and empowered through the Holy Spirit to exercise dominion in life. And so that's kind of a short version of the comparison that Paul offers with really confusing words. In verse 20, Paul says, but law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. Just when we think that Paul is done with talking about the law, he goes and says this. So essentially, Paul says, not only did the law not curb sin, but it accelerated the growth of the trespass, uh, but that as sin increased, grace increased all the more. If you wish that Paul would unpack this a little bit more, you are not alone. Um, One final note about exercising dominion in a restoration of our glory, just to kind of fully understand Paul's world. Um, For Paul, there is a power that human beings are meant to exercise in nature as God's image bears. That's why God put us in the garden to have dominion over the created world and to extend the borders of that garden, to extend God's wise creative rule. But what happens when we commit idolatry, which Paul talks about in chapter 1, is that we hand over that authority to something else. Um, The power that we are supposed to exercise is handed over to a created thing, which leads to a foreign or alien power called sin that then has dominion over the creation. And the irony is that the dominion of sin grows and begin to enslave us who originally were supposed to have dominion. Uh, Thus, we hand over our power and we become slaves. Thus, salvation is really a rescue from this pattern, which, among other things, restores the dominion that God always wanted us to exercise. And so it's important to note that dominion is not the same thing as domination, that domination or the abuse of power is what dominion looks like when tainted by sin. And so if you have ever been around someone who's very controlling or dominates a human being, that's not what we mean by dominion. Um, That's what dominion looks like when tainted by sin. But dominion is really a wise, authoritative Um, stewardship of that which is entrusted to us to where God's presence grows, where the new creation grows. But the thing that kind of stops that is idolatry, which is where we cease to exercise dominion and hand over that power to a created thing and worship that. And so that's just a little bit about how Paul kind of sees the world, I think, Uh, and uh, how all that plays into this point that he's trying to make slowly in Romans.